Do you want to raise your dog more holistically, but you don't quite know what that means or how to go about it? Well, in today's episode, we will hear from author and integrative veterinarian, Dr. Judy Morgan, who will discuss the three pillars that provide a foundation for creating a healthier life for our pets, food, vaccinations, and chemicals. By the end of this episode, you will have the tools to begin or level up raising a happier, healthier dog. If you would like to watch the less edited version of this episode, you can find the YouTube link below. There are also chapter markers on YouTube to help you jump around to specific areas of interest. I would really appreciate your sharing this episode with other pet lovers. So without further ado, let's get this party started. Hello and welcome to Dog Happy, where we help you have happier, healthier dogs one interview at a time. Tune in for compelling stories with pet professionals, authors, and trainers that will educate and empower you to easily take action concerning the health and well-being of your dog. Now, please welcome the host of Dog Happy, Missy Courtney. Welcome to Dog Happy. I'm Missy, and our guest today is Dr. Judy Morgan. Dr. Morgan has been a veterinarian for the past 36 years, practicing integrative medicine, which combines traditional medicine with expanded treatment options, such as acupuncture, chiropractic, and traditional Chinese medicine food therapy. She is the best-selling author of four books, hundreds of online and print magazine articles. She has been featured on Fox News, local cable television, CNN, PBS, ABC, CBS, and as a guest on over 200 radio shows. Dr. Morgan was the 2018 Woman of the Year in the Pet Industry, 2019 International Association of Top Professionals Veterinarian of the Year, 2019 Pet Age Woman of Influence, and 2019 Veterinary Hero Award nominee. Welcome to Dog Happy, Dr. Judy. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. Oh, you're welcome. So today we're going to be talking about your From Needles to Natural and Yin and Yang Nutrition for Dogs. And so could we start with finding out how did you become an integrative veterinarian? It's actually an interesting journey, uh, which is described in the From Needles to Natural book. But I went to veterinary school in the early 1980s and I went to the University of Illinois. So that's Midwest USA. Very traditional. Absolutely nothing about alternative medicine was taught there. Uh, So I spent the first 10 years in practice in very traditional practices, which is great because you need that even if you're going to be an alternative veterinarian or an integrative veterinarian, you really need a good basis. Uh, And that's what I tell students when I speak to them that they really need that good background and a really good understanding of traditional medicine before branching out. And about 10 years into practice, uh, I had a business partner at the time with another veterinarian and he did a lot of orthopedic surgery. And so I said, uh, a flyer came across our desk for a course called veterinary orthopedic manipulation. And it said, help your patients heal faster from surgery, orthopedic surgery. And I thought, well, I don't do the surgery, but if I could do something afterwards, and I was really at that point thinking I wanted to be a rehab veterinarian. That was when underwater treadmills had first started coming out. um, And people had started talking about physical therapy. So I thought, well, that'd be really cool. And my sister's a physical therapist. So I thought, well, that'd be a great integration. Yeah. Uh, But then when I went to the course, I found out within the first couple of hours that it was actually a course on veterinary chiropractic. And at the time, I wasn't even sure that I believed in chiropractic. But once you pay for the course, you're going to stick it out. So I did. And when I came back to work after the course, uh, I started using it. 
And the changes I saw were miraculous. And so I said, oh, okay, there's obviously something to this. And then I had, I had that guilty emotion of, I could have been using something like this all these years to help these patients that in, I was euthanizing animals that had intervertebral disc disease or hip dysplasia, uh, orthopedic problems, back problems that I now knew that I could have helped. So I had to get over that little hurdle. Um, But it was so amazing that I said, well, if this one little trick does this much for my patients, what else is out there? So I just started looking into everything. And uh, I studied homeopathy, I studied acupuncture, I studied essential oils, aromatherapy, color therapy, raindrop therapy, Reiki, craniosacral therapy. There are so many alternative things out there. And so I just started going in all directions. And then after a few months, I said, my head's going to explode. <laughs> I can't do can't all. Fit it all in. I know, right? <laughs> like I can't be a jack of all trades. I got to pick one thing. So I took an acupuncture course and fell in love with traditional Chinese medicine and the four branches of traditional Chinese medicine. Everybody's familiar for the most part with acupuncture because that's been become very mainstream, really. Uh, Twina, which is kind of a combination of massage and chiropractic herbs, uh, herbal therapy, and then food therapy. And the only thing that I knew about food therapy and veterinary medicine up until that point was prescription diets. And I now look back and I I apologize to all those animals (laughs) that I prescribed prescription diets for all those years. When I started getting into the food therapy and studying it, it really hit my hot button. And I knew that I had found my niche. And really, when you talk to any holistic veterinarians or integrated veterinarians, they all will have that one thing that really drives their passion, whether it's acupuncture or chiropractic or herbal therapy. Um, We have one who is an essential oil expert. We have one who's an expert in all the different medicinal mushrooms. Uh, So everybody finds their little niche. And for me, food therapy was the thing that just really hit my hot button. Um, so that's where my main focus has been. Uh, but I really, so I integrate food therapy, dietary therapy in every case that I, that I touch every case that I deal with very commonly we're combining herbs. Uh, before I retired from clinical practice, uh, we were using cold laser therapy, acupuncture, uh, chiropractic on most of our patients, but I still did traditional medicine. So I'm a huge fan of lab work. Lab work tells us what's going on inside that animal. I'm a huge fan of getting an ultrasound or an x-ray and seeing what's going on. I want to know how bad their arthritis is. I want to know what's going on on the inside. I want to, I want to know early on if we're building a tumor or something in the Mm -hmm. abdomen. Um, And I loved surgery. So, uh, I mean, my practices were full service in that we had some clients who were 100% holistic. We had some clients who were 100% traditional. The majority, probably 80% of them were integrated, leaning more toward holistic. So do you still have your clinics? Um, I retired November 16th so that I could move from New Jersey to North Carolina and help raise my new baby granddaughter. Well, that is a good reason. So can you tell me a little bit what it looks like for a pet parent who wants to raise their pet in a holistic manner from an integrative veterinarian's point of view? So there, for me, there are sort of three pillars that we need to look at. One is 
food and diet because nutrition is the basis of everything. Food is the foundation of life. I have a whole series <laughs> called Food is the Foundation of Life. Uh, but it really is. And if you think about it, if you ate three meals a day of fast food, um, I have a relative who does that and is probably the most unhealthy person I know. Um, so if we feed our pets sort of from the junk food aisle or the fast food aisle is what I like to refer to it rather than, and feeding food that I consider dead food. Uh, it's been processed to death really versus feeding whole foods, human grade foods. There shouldn't, we shouldn't have pet feed versus pet food. Our pets should be eating food, healthy, nutritious food. So that's the, the, the first, um, the first thing that I, I look at, and certainly, you know, I'm a food junkie. So, <laughs> but food, we have to look at the foundation and make sure that we're getting good nutrition into our pets so that we keep their immune system healthy and, and uh, try to stave off cancers and uh, chronic disease. And the second thing that we have to look at is vaccines. Vaccinations for our pets have saved many lives. I went to veterinary school in the early 80s. That was when we first started seeing parvovirus in dogs. And our uh, intensive care unit at the university was just filled with dozens of dying dogs with bloody vomiting and diarrhea. We did not have a parvo vaccine at the time. What they started using was a cat vaccine that was a parvo type virus. And that actually started saving lives. And then they developed the parvo vaccine. So, Distemper. My mom's dog, when she was uh, maybe 10 years old, died of distemper. It was a farm dog. And that was before we had vaccines for distemper. So vaccines definitely save lives. The problem is that when the veterinary profession started vaccinating animals for things like distemper, hepatitis, parvovirus, um, it, I, and I'm not really sure how they came up with this, but it was just, well, we're going to send you a card for a reminder every year without research behind how long do those vaccines really last and how do we prove that they're actually lasting longer. The only way to really prove that would be to do challenge studies where you vaccinate an animal and then you come back in a year and you expose them to distemper virus or parvovirus and you see whether they get the disease and then you come back a year later and do that again. So in order to have a good study, you have to do a challenge study like that. So um, luckily, uh, something called a titer has become available, which is a blood test. And that blood test will tell us, are there antibodies still circulating in the bloodstream and at what level so that we know whether the pet is still protected and we can use that for dogs or cats. Um, what we have discovered by doing that is that many of these animals with the core vaccines, so things like distemper, hepatitis, rabies, parvovirus, some of these animals will hold a positive titer, good immune status for three to five years, and some of them for life. Wow. So why are we jabbing them with something every year when mm. they don't need it every year? And every time we give a vaccine, we stimulate the immune system. And so I started looking in my practice over the years, we really modified how we were doing things. And instead of giving uh, I, I see records from people whose puppies have had a series of seven vaccines just repeated over and over and over. Um, we started a modified protocol in my practice where they basically got one distemper, one parvo, 
one rabies and not till six to 12 months on the rabies. Uh, and then titered those animals and they had stronger immunity, longer lasting than the animals who were jabbed multiple times. And that's partly because their immune system was able to deal with it appropriately instead of being overstimulated and freaking out. Uh, so there are some vaccines that are only good for one year, and it really depends on the type of vaccine. So for instance, leptospirate leptospirosis vaccine. It's only good for nine to 12 months. I don't like the vaccine. I don't recommend the vaccine. I rarely used the vaccine. I wouldn't use it in small dogs. They tend to uh, have allergic reactions. They like to die. So <laughs> it's not one that I recommended. Uh, I don't like the Lyme vaccine. I don't like the influenza vaccine. Didn't use that in my practice. Um, but every, every pet has a different lifestyle. And so it, it shouldn't be that you walk into the veterinary office and they say, well, here's our vaccine protocol and all dogs get the same thing. Well, if you have a dog who lives in a high rise apartment in New York city and your cousin has a dog that lives in the farmland of Ohio and is used for hunting through the fields, very different lifestyles. Right. You need to have a conversation about what's my pet going to be exposed to what, does this pet truly need, not just one size fits all. So we really need to, to look at that uh, because overstimulation of the immune system, uh, chronic poking, kind of poking the mama bear uh, can lead to autoimmune disease, chronic inflammation, arthritis, uh, any inflammatory disease. Uh, so we really need to look at the vaccines critically and back off and really only give what is needed. And then the third pillar is chemicals chemicals, chemicals, chemicals. We live in a chemical society. We live in the, I just want a pill to fix it overnight. Uh, we live in the, oh my gosh, I never want to see a bug. I don't want to see a flea. I don't want to see a mosquito. I don't want to see a tick. I don't want to see a worm. That's gross. That's disgusting. What if, you know, my house gets infested? What if my animal gets sick from a tick bite? Yeah. Okay. I get it. However, we don't have to keep throwing pesticides onto and into our pets to control that. We can use natural products. We can use natural defense against the outside world. Again, if you have a pet who lives in a high rise in New York City, why would you vaccinate for Lyme disease? Why would you apply flea and tick chemicals? Why people who have dogs that live in very cold climates and spend no time outside, why are they on heartworm preventative? And again, the veterinary profession has really gone to the point of, from a traditional standpoint, of making it a one size fits all and saying all dogs need to be on heartworm flea and tick preventative every month, all year long, no matter where you live. That is false absolutely false. Uh, and I have a good, good story for that. I was speaking in Nova Scotia a few years ago. It's beautiful up there. We were there in like August and it was 35 degrees at night. I'm like, how do people oh live here? <laughs> <Not there. laughs> but, so I was, uh, I was doing this talk. It was at a pet store, a holistic pet store. It was, it was great. The owner was wonderful. And uh, she invited her veterinarian to come to the talk. And I oh. thought, well, this will be fun. A very <laughs> traditional veterinarian. Uh, but I was very nice to him because one of our dogs got sick on the way up there. And he actually was nice enough to see our dog when we arrived that night. Um, 
and and help me out. So I was like, well, he's a good guy. He was really nice. Although uh, some of the posters in their uh, exam rooms about raw feeding, I was like, mm, we're just not going to talk about that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I got talking about heartworm preventative and I said, okay, well, wait a minute. You guys are in Nova Scotia. Do you even have heartworms in Nova Scotia? And so he was in the audience. I said, hey, do you have heartworms in Nova Scotia? Because it's so cold here. Right. And he said, no, we don't. And I said, okay, then I guess I don't really need to talk about this. I said, but do you recommend heartworm preventative? And he said, absolutely. Every dog all year round, every month. You know, as soon as I picked my jaw up off the floor and tried not to look like a fool, I said, uh, what would be the reason behind that? He said, well, for intestinal parasite prevention. <laughs> and I went, could you run stool samples? couple times a year, treat as needed. And he said, well, got to go. I have office hours. <laughs> you know, I was really nice. And then after he walked out the door, I, I was kind of like, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't have an understanding for that. Um, yeah, but I, you want to know something? That's exactly why this show exists. Because <laughs> I think the more you know, the better sense you can make of things. I think they that a lot of things are just started because like you said, the card in the mail, come vaccinate your dog. Well, that's because nobody was coming into the veterinarian. So now we're <laughs> going to have you come in once a year. We're going to do everything all at once because, you know, almost like that farm mentality, I'm not going to be coming off the farm to make the trip in except once a year. So let's just try and do everything then. But it's also this idea and I think with commercial, we see more commercials for those products and why we should use them and almost scaring us into needing yes. to use them than actually stepping back and thinking, you know, why would my dog that lives in an apartment need these things? I mean, I know why my dog who goes in on hikes and things like that would need them, but you're right. Uh, I think a lot of times people need to step back that there's more to your pet care than just feeding, vaccinating, and keeping them safe from, um, from parasites. And your book, um, From Needles to Natural, really dives into all of those, all of those areas. Um, I did want to ask a question about the vaccinations. So if, if my veterinarian isn't an integrative veterinarian, and I want to use the protocol that you outline in your book, um, would they have the vaccinations in the single doses or do, I mean, when I get a DHLPP, is that four shots? Is it all in one? I mean, what does that look like? So if you're a veterinarian, uh, if you get that card and it says your uh, dog is due for a DHLPP, uh, it might even include coronavirus. So it might be a DHLPPC. Your dog is going to get one injection, but in that injection, it will have distemper, hepatitis, four variants of lepto, para-influenza, parvovirus, plus or minus corona. So that's four, five, six, seven, eight, eight or nine in one. And while you're there, if you get the kennel cough vaccine, that's three more. So now we're up to 12. Then you get Lyme, that's 13. Influenza's two more, 14, 15, rabies, 16. Can I ask so one really quick question? <laughs> Is there any time that a human being would get that many shots or that many vaccinations at one time? 
as, as a child, I'm saying just it simply as a child, not even as an adult. Oh, I have a good story on that too. So my son, <laughs> when he was ready to, uh, he was, you know, at the age where I guess he was four and a half, whatever, before kindergarten. And I took him to the pediatrician and I said, well, what do we need to get this kid into school? You know, of course we had done all the infant shots and everything. And my son was needle phobic. And so it was not a pretty sight. And it ended up with him spread eagle on the floor with me pinning him down and them jabbing him. He got five different injections plus a TB test and a blood test and it, and I'll tell you what, it scarred him and, and I both for life. Um, and so when my daughter came along, I said, we are not doing that. We are not doing that. But uh, that is the one time that, uh, and I don't know if that's changed over the years, but I know they've developed more vaccines over the years. But if you think about it, if your pediatrician said, well, we're going to have your child come in every year and we're going to poke them with this vaccine every single I mean, I guess if the pediatrician told you that's what you needed to do, you would nod your head just like you do with the veterinarian and go, okay, well, if that's what science says I need, then that's what I'm going to do. But um, I think maybe we question a little bit more with our kids. I don't know. I, I didn't question enough with my son, but I wasn't holistic then. Right. Um, and then when my daughter came along, I was like, mm, <laughs> think about this a little bit. <laughs> Yeah. My sister is needle phobic. She had, we went to Europe and, and I think there were five doctors and nurses trying to control her long enough to get the vaccination she needed to go. So yeah, I can imagine. Uh, I feel so terrible for your son. I know if, if you want to travel to Africa, you have to get a bunch of vaccines. Wow. Well, so yeah, they see, do it. But that was one time. That's not every year like you're talking about or I mean, if you did the DHLPP, it is due every year, right? It's no, 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 no. no. So distemper and parvo may last a lifetime. We right, don't know. I know that it may last, but would a conventional vet you do that every so year? What's interesting is the American Animal Hospital Association, and I looked up their vaccine guidelines just the other day, just to verify that right. I had it right. <laughs> uh, their vaccine guideline states that the core vaccines uh, distemper hepatitis parvo should be given no more often than every three to five years. Okay. It is okay. not an annual vaccine yet. I see records every single day yeah. where, uh, when, uh, there was an interview that came out not too long ago, 60%, it was a survey that done through veterinarians, 60% still recommend annual vaccines for the core vaccines. Not necessary. Not yeah. necessary. Educate yourself. That is, you just need to know. So if I want to break that up, that vaccination protocol up into the recommendations you have in your book, how do I, how do I go about doing something like that? Well, so you, I mean, I, I cite references in the book, you okay. know, AHA and AVMA. You can also go to their websites and print it out yourself that says, Hey, this is, not recommended every year. So I don't want this every year. You can ask for a titer, which is the blood test for the distemper and parvo. Uh, interestingly, a lot of veterinarians will say, oh, we don't know how to read titers, which is not correct because the lab will report it out as this is good or bad. You know, it's, it's a yes or a no. The lab oh. will tell you. So it's not an interpretation problem. Uh, some veterinarians will say, oh, that's going to cost you like $300. Uh, it's not. 
you can get it for much less. It kind of depends which lab they're using. And so a little tip for people, you can have your vet draw the blood and spin it down and hand it to you. You can mail it in to Hemopet uh, Lab, hemopet.org, which is Dr. Gene Dodds out in California. You can mail it in to Dr. Rob, which is Protect the Pets, which is very inexpensive. Um, and you can get the tighter results. And frankly, for a lot of our clients, we didn't do titers every year unless they needed proof for boarding, grooming, daycare, training, that sort of thing. Um, I understand why those establishments need uh, proof of protection for the pets that are coming into their facilities, uh, but I, we spent a lot of time educating those who were around our practices so that they would accept the titers. If you're in an area where your groomer is not familiar with titers, where your groomer doesn't understand that you don't need the vaccine every year, you can uh, have a little trouble there as well. But it's, it's really about continuing to educate people, which is why I do podcasts and why I write books and uh, why I do Facebook Live all the time, because I want more people to understand that our pets can live a healthier life. Um, statistically, this is, this, well, a couple of shock, shocking statistics. Uh, back in the 1970s, the average life expectancy for a golden retriever, so medium to semi-large size dog, was 17 years. It's now 10. Wow. And uh, yes, our world has gotten more polluted, but their food has gotten worse. There's more vaccines that we throw at them and a lot more chemicals. The second scary statistic is that any dog who lives more than 10 years has a 1.6 out of two chance of developing cancer. Yeah. So, uh, and our dogs all live into their late teens. So, uh, and actually the only one I've lost to cancer, I've had many with cancer, but the only one I lost to cancer was lost before age eight. Oh, um, so, uh, you know, but if they live long enough, they have a pretty good chance of having some significant problems. I think we all do, right? <laughs> <laughs> if we live long enough, I know I want to be like my mom. She's the energizer bunny. She's so healthy. <laughs> right. I know. I, 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 that's my goal is uh, to only have what, like maybe a day where I don't feel good. And then I know, right. <laughs> I can just keep take it right up to there. So, which actually, um, uh, I think then let's actually circle back to food because probably a lot of that, the ability to kind of take it right up to the last day as healthy and um, energetic and happy kind of is part of that foundation, that first pillar um, food. So is diet the one thing that is kind of, easy to start with if you're trying to move in a more holistic direction with your dog? Well, I think it's probably one of the most important things uh, if you're trying to move into not even necessarily more holistic, but just healthier lifestyle for your pet. Um, and 95% of pet owners are going to feed dry kibble. I don't care if I stand on my head and spit jelly beans, 95% of pet owners are going to feed dry kibble. It may be a, a cost factor. It's certainly a convenience factor. And it's an advertising factor because it's advertised by your veterinarian and by the pet food companies as being the most nutritious way to feed your pet. Uh, 
the cardiologists, the veterinary cardiologists say that if uh, you don't feed your dog, one of the main three pet food companies, dry kibble, your dog is going to die of heart failure, which is just ridiculous. Um, we have been um, fed lies for decades, really, about pet food. So this is my favorite comparison. If you took your child to the pediatrician and the pediatrician, and I don't, ha I have a cereal box that I had made. <laughs> if you, if you took your child to the pediatrician and they handed you this cereal box and it had something inside that looked like cocoa puffs, whatever. And on the box, it said 100% complete natural holistic nutrition provides everything your child needs. Just dump it in the bowl, put it in front of them twice a day. They wouldn't eat it anyway. <laughs> well, and you would look at yeah, your pediatrician you like they, they lost their freaking minds. Right. But this is what we're told with our pets. And when pet owners go into the veterinarian and they say, well, I feed some table scraps. Usually you're admonished and told, oh my gosh, you're going to unbalance his diet. Right. Okay. I don't know what you had for breakfast this morning, but I've been doing big farmhouse breakfast. We go out and do our farm chores and then we come back and I do a farmhouse breakfast. So I had fried potatoes and onions. I had an egg from our chickens and sausage. Um, Certainly not a balanced meal. Parts of it, not even so healthy. <laughs> Lunch was some leftover pasta from last night with a couple of veggies in it. Uh, dinner is going to be cheeseburger soup. Some new recipe my husband found. Okay, oh. whatever. We're doing <laughs> Southern comfort food. Right. It's not complete and balanced. Okay, it's fine. I'm healthy. I'm alive. I've made it through 61 and a half years without balancing every meal that I eat in pretty decent health. So why is there this myth that our pets have to eat the exact same processed food day in and day out? It is the most unhealthy way to eat. And for even people you know, clients who say, I just, I can't change. I, I kibble. That's all I can do. Then I say, okay, let's find the healthiest brand we can that might be using, you know, some organic ingredients or may not have so many synthetic chemicals in it right. may not be quite as dead. Um, and we're also going to rotate that food. We're not going to feed the, so let's say you find two or three brands that work well for your dog, rotate them find a brand that works for your dog and rotate the proteins. So this week we're going through a bag that's pork based. Next week we're going through a bag that's chicken based. Next week we're going through a bag that's beef based because you're much more likely to catch any, any minor deficiencies. You're much more likely to fill in the holes. What I would say to people who say, look, I just, I don't have time. I can't do it. Okay. Do you cook food for your family? Right. Do you have fresh veggies, fresh meats in your household? Do you have eggs in your refrigerator? Could you please just even a few times a week, give your dog some of that fresh food? Yeah. You know, cook an egg, throw it on top. So I have a few superfoods that, uh, and there was a great study at Purdue uh, 2005 where they took Scotty's Scottish Terriers mm -hmm. and they fed, uh, they, they, did a retrospective study and they looked at dogs that were fed just dry kibble and dogs that were supplemented with 30% fresh fruits and veggies in their diet. And the difference in bladder cancer 
between the two was overwhelming, overwhelming. Those who got just that small amount of fresh food, particularly bright orange, yellow, and green vegetables, like uh, yellow and orange peppers, carrots, butternut squash, uh, dark leafy greens, those dogs had much lower cancer rate. Why? Because they got fresh food with vitamins and and minerals that were still appropriate and still alive. When we process that food, a vitamin, a synthetic vitamin mineral mix is added back in. So it's sort of like feeding your dog cardboard and then giving them a vitamin tablet to make up for all the nutrition that's not in that food anymore. And there's a a fallacy that uh, I'm a raw feeder. I love raw feeding. I know most people will not raw feed, although a lot of people are moving in that direction. Yeah. But gently cooked food is also fine. And no, you do not lose the nutritional value when you cook the food. Uh, The big thing is if you're cooking something like in a slow cooker, Uh feed the juice too, because a lot of that stuff is in the juice. That's where it all went. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but if you think it's a fallacy to say that if you cook food, so this is one of my, you know, where I go back and forth with the, and believe me, I love raw feeding. This is kind of where I go back and forth. It's okay. Well, if cooking food makes it devoid of nutrition, then why am I alive? Because I've eaten cooked food most of my Right. Yeah. No, there's just some things that don't make sense when people, when people, you know, perpetuate that. Yes. So a few superfoods to add to your dog's diet, eggs, eggs are almost a complete food just by themselves. They're wonderful. Blueberries, great antioxidant, that rich blue color, phenomenal for them. Um, Mushrooms, most people don't think about feeding their pets mushrooms, but the medicinal mushrooms, so shiitake, uh, reishi, maitake mushrooms, those are amazing for good gut health, um, cancer prevention. Mushrooms work best if they're uh, cooked or processed. So I love to saute them in olive oil or coconut oil. Sardines, superfood for 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 our dogs. So canned sardines, just, you know, if nothing else, pick up a can of sardines when you're at the grocery store next time and throw them on top of your dog's food over the course of the week. Superfood for them, really rich in omega-3s, just really good for them. And then dark leafy greens, kale, collards, spinach, really, really good for them. Again, they need to be processed in some way. So either run them through the food processor, steam them, saute them, uh, just to break down the cell walls. Dogs are not really great at breaking down plant cell walls in their digestive tract. So that's why we process those a little bit. Um, but you'll make a huge difference in, in your pet's uh, vitality with right. simple, simple changes. And honestly, I think that is for anybody who feeds kibble, whether it's a high quality or not, you're still looking at 30 to 50% carbohydrate in that food. Oh, at least 50. Yeah. To make that that little cute, little crispy, convenient food source. So adding, adding those things would be the first step. And I find that for most people, it, it begins right there that if you'll just take that first step, you start to see, wow, I didn't realize that my dog did have 
uh, runny eyes. It, you know, it never, it never clicked with me until all of a sudden I'm like, gosh, his eyes look better or his ears have cleared up or he's not really got dry skin anymore or she, you know, he or she, right. but yeah, it can be the very first step towards, um, better health. I will say that walking into a pet food store has to be overwhelming for any <laughs> pet owner. Uh, yes. I mean, even if you educate yourself on what is supposed to be a good food, because I know for myself, when I fed kibble for a while, I would, um, you know, I'd be like, well, this is pea and legume based. And I didn't, I know there's prep methods for legumes for people. Are they doing that for the pets when they use it in this food? Is pea protein really all that good for my dog? Because you'll look at the bag and it's like X amount of protein. You think it's really great, but it's really, it's more of a vegetarian protein yes. with this tiny little bit of meat base, right? Exactly. So so if you think about the economics of producing uh, that big bag of kibble that is not that expensive, meat is expensive. Yeah. Even if you're using the worst quality meat, meat is going to be more expensive than plants. And that's why the large pet food companies put out, they spend a lot of time and effort telling people how great corn is for our dogs and cats. It is not. Yes, it is an energy source. It is a cheap energy source. However, most of the pet food recalls over the past year were for aflatoxins, which are mold toxins in the pet food that causes liver failure. Uh, so I, one of the most common changes that we would see on lab work in our practice was elevated liver enzymes. Very common in animals that are fed kibble that is high in corn or grains or legumes because the, the aflatoxin aspergillus mold grows on the grains and the legumes. So you're uh, saying that if your dog's blood work comes back with a little bit of liver enzyme, a little higher liver enzyme, like I've never heard my vet say, let's take a look at what you're feeding. No, they won't. They be, did. Okay. But, <laughs> they won't. All right. Unless, unless, no. So unless they are really up to date and following. Uh, so there was just a huge recall recently. Uh, sports mix food uh, sold in 36 countries, killed a bunch of dogs. Now there's oh. lawsuits, of course, uh, mm -hmm. because of the aflatoxin. So the pet food industry, we would like to think that it's well-regulated and that the inspections are there and blah, blah. But uh, it, it's, it's regulated on the books. It's just not regulated in actuality the way we believe it is. So what will happen in a... Um, so a big pet feed mill where they're churning out a whole bunch of kibble at their back door, these trucks will arrive that are huge grain trucks filled with corn. And the inspectors are supposed to sample the corn to see how much mold level there is in there. Well, anybody who's trying to offload poor quality corn, grain, peas, whatever it is, anybody's trying to offload poor quality, what are they going to do? They're going to hide all the really bad stuff in the middle and it's going to look good on the surface because they know where those samples are going to be taken from. Uh, so an awful lot of it, it, the pet feed industry is really the human waste food industry. 
So anything that is not human edible gets shuttled over to the pet food side. And I don't know about you, but I want my animals eating human edible food. And people don't realize that what is in those bags, many of them, not all, many of those bags and cans, it is inedible food that should have been discarded at the slaughterhouse. Well, it was discarded from the human food chain and it was redirected to the pet food chain. So for instance, let's say a cow dies out in the field. Mm -hmm. It could have died from cancer, dehydration, pick an illness, doesn't matter. That cow cannot then be slaughtered and used for human food. It's called 4D meat, dead, downer, disease, decaying, dying, something. Um, Pick your 4Ds. (laughs) 4D meat on the books is not allowed to be used for pet food. But FDA, we have them on record. We have them on recording saying we choose not to enforce that. So all of that meat goes to the pet food industry and it is rendered. And the interesting thing is that dead cow that might've laid out in the field for three days and is really rotten is then transported in an open truck in the, there was a great thing in Pittsburgh a couple of years ago. One of these trucks full of dead cow carcasses broke down on an August day (laughs) in front of a car dealership. Oh my goodness. And it sat there for a couple of days and it smelled so bad. The car dealership had to close down They couldn't be in business. And it was great because it made the front page of the paper. And so people were horrified to find out, oh my gosh, that stuff was on its way to the pet food, pet feed plant a few miles away. Right. People don't realize that this is what's going into their pet food, rotten, decayed meat. And what they have to do is they cook it at high heat and they basically melt it all down, which yes, will kill the bacteria that are there. However, the bacteria, when they're killed, produce something called endotoxins. And those endotoxins are toxic. And so this is why your pets do not thrive on these kinds of foods. And I think if more people knew what was really going in there, they would be like me and say, you know what? I'm getting human grade only. And there are, luckily, because... uh, of consumer advocacy uh, over the past few years, there are, well, thanks to Susan Thixton over the past 15 years, um, she's worked really hard. Uh, We have many pet food companies now that are using human grade ingredients and making human grade quality food. And that's what we really need to be looking for. Um, Feeding kibbles, trying to, if you're going to feed kibble, it's better to choose those high end invest your money because you're going to either invest it in the food you're feeding or you're going to invest it in the, the veterinary bills. Um, And then you're recommending 30% fresh foods. Um, If you're going to stick with the kibble. Yep. Okay. And would you have people, um, is it worth it to add the kale and the blueberries or would you say really only go with eggs and protein since it's already so high in vegetable matter, or do you think it's just fresh that matters? Fresh matters and it's high in different vegetable matter. You don't find, well, (laughs) the the pet food companies, they're getting wise. And so they'll put a picture of blueberries and carrots and fresh things on the front of the bag. Mm -hmm. 
Right. You have to know how to be a label reader. So I look at those and I go, all right, well, the ingredients on the bag are listed in what is in there in the highest level will be the first ingredient. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it goes down from there. So when you're reading that label, find salt because salt is in the recipe at 0.5%. Tiny. So if the blueberries are below that, you got one blueberry in that bag. (laughs) That whole bag. That's so funny. And so that's, but that's how they get you because they say, well, we added all these great antioxidant foods and fresh foods. First of all, they're not fresh by the time they're processed to death. And second of all, if they're below salt, there's not enough in there to make a difference at all. Wow. (laughs) But it's being a label reader and, and knowing what the label means is the problem. Yeah. And we'll, Ali will actually make sure that we have more interviews that really just dive deep into that, just that topic, because it can be confusing. You walk in and, and the, the bag says chicken and sweet potato. But if you look on the back, it's got turkey. It might have lamb. It might have um, a whole bunch of other grains that were never advertised on the outside. So it does get to be overwhelming. And I know, I know canned food is probably one step up from uh, kibble on the, at least the freshness side? Um, it, well, ingredient wise, there are good cans and bad cans, just like there's, you know, with everything. Um, it is cooked at a lower heat. So it's less processed and a little less dead. The biggest problem with canned foods is they like to make them um, not be watery because people don't like to open the can and feed soup because it's messy. Uh, but they use binders in there that can actually be carcinogenic. So again, knowing how to read your labels, avoid carrageenan. Um, and also knowing some of the definitions. So if something says beef filet mignon flavor, the word flavor is just a flavoring. There's there's no beef <laughs> filet mignon. And believe me, they are not putting filet mignon in your pet's cheap dog food. And if it says with, it's 3% or less. So if it says with beef, it's less than 3% beef in there. Oh my goodness. And you Dinner have- or entree, I think is up to like 25% maybe. And we will link, I will link <laughs> in the show notes below. You actually have a whole webinar where you went into how to understand um, labeling, right? And yes. and pet food. Uh, so I will make sure we link that below so listeners can um, deep dive into that. Okay, so canned food, marginally better, not great, but- <laughs> some, some, are, some are actually pretty decent, but um, you, you just have to, you have to know the companies and you have to, uh, we have a class action lawsuit going on right now, canned food that killed dogs because it had pentobarbital in it. It was advertised as human grade, was not, it was from the dead animal guy down the street and it had slaughter or uh, euthanized animals that were euthanized with uh, pentobarbital and it killed a lady's dogs. Oh my gosh. How horrible when you're too, when you're, and that's, I think the scariest part, you're trying to do the best you can for your animals and you really think you're doing the maximum, but, but then something like this happens and it, and how crushing to, to lose a pet in the first place, but to lose them like that, that's awful. I know it that is. years and ago- And that company just, that, that company flat out lied. On their website, they flat out lied. And so that, you know, now, you've, I, now I know there are listeners saying, oh, well, that's great. Now I can't even trust the website when I go to it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, the web requires you to do a little bit more than just trust what you- what you see. And I think if people get your from needles to natural, 
and also watch some of the videos that will be linked here. I think that you'll get a really good basis. You need to, it can be overwhelming. So just start small and maybe just get good at learning how to read a label and, and choose the right one, or maybe just go with that high quality and go with a high quality dog food. If you're feeding kibble, add that fresh food and just see the wonderful changes that'll happen with your dogs. Um, so I know years ago I started, um, I had a dog with cancer and it was when Dr. Pitcairn came out with his book. And, um, that really is just dog food before it's rendered it. It's really high in grains. It's all of the vitamin and mineral mixes added back in and just some meat. But I will tell you the difference in the way my dogs respond to that, um, the difference in their coats and how they felt. Um, it really showed me that, that, um, a better quality food can make a world of difference. Uh, sometimes I'm, um, for people whose animals where I've, I've said, Hey, try this. And, and then they'll go, but now my dog's eating better than me. <laughs> it happens. Actually, it happens a lot, actually. Uh, and yeah. I've had a lot of clients who have improved their own diets because I taught them how to feed their, their pet. And they saw the difference and said, I had one client, she and her husband between them, they lost 120 pounds. She said, if we are feeding our dog this well, why are we not doing this for ourselves? And she made the change. Uh, two resources that I would recommend for people who are unsure and overwhelmed by the pet food aisle. If you have an independent pet store retailer somewhere nearby, I would highly recommend going to them. So that's those small stores, the independent stores. They might be part of a small chain, uh, but avoid the really huge big box stores and avoid the grocery store for buying pet food. If you go to those independent retailers, most of them are very well versed on the different levels of pet food and they will have their staff trained to be able to point you in the right direction. And you'll know you're in a really good pet store, if they've got freezers with frozen food or refrigerators with refrigerated food, not all refrigerated food is good, but there's quite a bit that is good. Um, but if you walk in and you see refrigerators and freezers in the store, you know, you found an independent retailer that uh, supports raw feeding, which means they've done their research. And it doesn't mean they're going to tell you, you have to feed raw, but they've done their research and they're going to understand the food industry, pet food industry. A second resource, I don't know if you have uh, talked to or come across Susan Thixton yet, truthaboutpetfood.com. She puts together a list. People cannot buy their way onto the list. The oh. only way a pet food company can get on Susan, it's just called The List. Um, truthaboutpetfood.com. Okay. Uh, there is a fee for it. Uh, it's a nominal fee, but every year Susan puts out the list and it's the list of foods that she would consider feeding her own pets. Uh, there's not a lot of pet food companies on there because they can't buy their way on. And in order to get on the list, they have to provide every bill or invoice for where their food, all their food ingredients came from. Wow. They have to be human grade ingredients and they have to have complete transparency. And so any company who is willing to jump through the hoops to provide all of that to her and get on that list is going to be way above board. So strongly recommend truthaboutpetfood.com. Susan yes. is a great pet advocate. 
Yeah, I'll have to check that out too. And listeners, the I think the more we support things like that, the more power that we have as consumers. Absolutely. Because pet companies want to be on that list. So you know what? He over here. We've got no accountability, but over here, we're watching all these dollars go to these other pet foods. So we've talked about kibble and what we can do to make that better. Now, as we move into home cooked and raw, you, um, let's also talk a little bit about um, your book, Yin and Yang, um, Nutrition for Dogs, because not only can home cooked and raw actually benefit the dog more, by being more bioavailable because it's fresh. Like you said, it's not the box of cereal sitting there that's fortified. It's actual, it's actual food, which as a side note, it drives me absolutely batty when I hear people say, well, that's people food. That's, <laughs> you just, no, it's food. Yeah, it, yeah, it's just plain old food. I mean, now there's food that's appropriate for people and there's a foods that are appropriate for dogs, but they're not they're all, it's just all food. So yes. let's get that one first thing out of the way. But one of the things that I really love about your book, and we're only, uh, listeners, we're only touching the surface here of the magic that food can can render <laughs> um, in, a, in a dog's life um, and your own lives. And that's just it too. These, these topics, they become intertwined. What works for your dog, then you're like, like your, your clients before, they're like, oh, well, maybe it should work for me <laughs> or vice versa. If I decide, I, you know what, raw is too scary. I want to move into home cooked. Let's talk about some of the recipes that you have in your in your book and how I, how would I use those for my dogs? The book came about for a couple of reasons. Uh, I, so I'm one of those cooks that I never use a recipe. Well, I rarely use a recipe. I throw a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I mean, I made this wonderful shrimp dish last night and I looked up a couple of recipes online and went, okay, got it. And just, you know, started throwing things in. Uh, my husband, when we met, he is he really is like a chef grade uh, cook, uh, but everything is follow the recipe exactly. And there are these very intricate recipes, intricate recipes that I'm like, what? Why are you doing all that? So when I started doing consultations with people in my office and online and by the phone, and I would say, okay, well, we're going to, you know, cook this for the dog and we're going to add, I need you to add some dandelion greens to the diet to drain the liver. Or I need you to add some, uh, some liver or some beets to the diet as a good blood tonic. And they would say, well, how much? Just throw some in. <laughs> no, I can't do that. I need a recipe. You know, and then people would come in in the office and I'd spend three hours with them and I would have to sit there and write out recipes for them. And I finally decided that not everybody cooks like I do and not every, most people are not comfortable cooking like I do, which is just, you know, listen, everybody knows pork and apples go together. So you always have homemade applesauce with your pork dish. Right, right. That doesn't compute with most people. <laughs> competes yeah. with me. <laughs> well, plus we're getting so far away from cooking. Like from, yeah, from nowadays. real food. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank goodness for COVID because I'm in the kitchen right. all the time now. Everybody's back now. <laughs> <laughs> it's not good for the waistline, but uh, so I, I made the book partly to make my life easier because when I was doing consultations, I, I would have to start from scratch. You would think that I would have recipes written down and just tell people what they were. No, I started from scratch with every single one of them. And I thought there's got to be an easier way. So I made the book 
for those people who have to have measurements, who have to know exactly how much to put in uh, and exactly how to prepare it. But the recipes are divided. So Chinese medicine has uh, five personalities. And so the recipes are divided by the personalities, but you don't have to understand it. It's explained in the book, but you don't have to understand that part because it says, this is the diet for heart disease. (laughs) This is the diet for liver cancer. This is the diet for kidney disease. This is the diet. And so you, and you have multiple options in each one of the categories. There's also just basic diets. So my most famous recipe is called puploaf. Puploaf, I actually have a very basic version of puploaf in from needles to natural. And then, and I have a dry eye diet in there that I had designed for one of our dogs who wasn't making tears. It cured him. Um, and then I learned a lot more about food. So, uh, but puploaf has been very popular for about seven years now worldwide. And it's really interesting to go on, uh, social media and see pans and pictures of puploaf or puppins. That's if you make it in a little muffin, muffin. tray. And people all over the world have just jumped on this recipe. And there is a video on drjudymorgan.com for how to make puploaf. The recipe is on there. So if you don't buy the book, you can still get the recipe. Uh, There are multiple versions of puploaf, but puploaf is a recipe that is complete and balanced. So it, it has about 20 ingredients and that's where people complain and they say, oh my gosh, there's so many ingredients. What if I can't find this? What if I can't find that? Well, the ingredients are all there for a reason because we're balancing the nutrition using whole foods without having to add any sort of supplements. Wow. So the, the other recipes in the book are not complete and balanced by themselves, but there is a chapter near the back called the balancing act. And it tells you what you need to do in order to get it balanced. So add this much vitamin E and I mean, these are things you can get over the counter, add this much vitamin D, add this much zinc, add, you know, or um, there are many products on the market now that, uh, and there's quite a few on our website, uh, the drjudymorgan.com that are made for balancing homemade meals. So, and the, the supplements that we use are natural whole food, nothing synthetic. Uh, and that's what we're looking for, for our pets. When you read the labels on the pet food and you see, you know, it starts to get all those things that you can't pronounce and it it sounds all chemically, those are chemicals. Those are synthetic vitamins and minerals for the most part. And that when you put something synthetic into the body, the immune system reacts. And that's part of the reason we see so much inflammatory bowel disease. That's probably my number one consultation right now is people with animals with inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, So the yin and yang book was written for uh, the average pet owner who is having an issue Uh, whether it's chronic diarrhea, chronic vomiting, or the pet got diagnosed with lumps and bumps on its liver, or the pet is uh, diagnosed with kidney disease. And consumers are getting smarter and they look at those prescription diets and go, oh my gosh, those ingredients are ridiculous. They're horrible. And uh, a lot of synthetics in there. And uh, they're really expensive. Prescription diets are ridiculously overpriced, especially for the quality of ingredients that are in them. So I wanted to give people something where they could be empowered, where they could take control and say, okay, I can do this. I can, I can make my pet feel better. And it's, I have a diet in there called the liver draining diet. 
that one is extremely popular because as I was saying earlier, we see all these animals with elevated liver enzymes on their lab work. Great. Right. Let's put them on the liver draining diet. Look at that. 30 days. We got normal lab work. Wow. Happens all the time. Uh, there's a heart uh, draining diet. I have Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, which is a breed that is very prone to mitral valve heart disease. Um, and so sooner or later, most of them go into heart failure and that heart draining diet has saved so many dogs, given them good quality of life, uh, by helping get the fluid to go the right direction and get out of the body instead of, uh, sitting in the lungs. Uh, so, so I have a dog who has, so, um, the other day I ran, I was at the vet picking up some, I have a dog who has thyroid problems and I ran into a friend who has a seven-year-old Sheltie who was there, um, because she had been vomiting all night, but had just been diagnosed with, um, kidney disease. So I said to her, I'm like, I will find you. I will figure this out. We'll find some way seven years old with kidney yeah. disease 10, 15, 12, you know, up there. Okay. Things start to fail. It's been a long time, but this is a little dog. And that I felt like was a really early age. So it's, if she gets your book and, um, just wants to start someplace, does she just start with the kidney diet? No matter. I mean, just, is there just a general kidney plate? place to begin with? Yeah. So it's, it's going to be under the water personality because you know, the kidneys regulate water. Okay. <laughs> so it's underwater personality. Uh, there are quite a few kidney diets in there. And uh, in that particular chapter, there are some treats and uh, for, because kidney dogs, depending on their level of disease, uh, become very anorexic. They don't want to eat and they're nauseous. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of things in, in that section of the book for, you know, when they've got that upset stomach, when they don't want to eat things that are healthier for them. First thing I would say to her is uh, they need to try to figure out why the seven-year-old dog is suddenly in kidney failure. Does she have leptospirosis or another infectious disease that needs to be tried? Lyme disease can cause, um, kidney failure. And this is why people want the vaccines because they're like, ah, see now, now, now there's a bunch of people saying, Oh, I better get those vaccines. No, right. that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> um, but when your pet gets sick, you need to figure out why they're sick. And then you, both of those diseases are treatable. Lepto is treatable. Lyme is treatable. You just need to realize when your pet is sick and not wait until they're, you know, on their deathbed with three paws in the air. So, uh, so she needs to, uh, do the acute level of treatment, which is probably going to be IV fluids, maybe some phosphate binders. There's going to be a whole, this is where we combine the traditional and the alternative. And right. then we use food, we use herbs, we use acupuncture, so many things that could be used for that dog. And uh, depending on what the underlying cause is, we see polycystic kidney disease, which is a genetic kidney disease. That one's a problem because that's just kidneys that aren't well-formed. Um, and so that could be something different. Um, but, but she's not, she's now by starting with this and looking into this, the book kind of outlines that, but now she has a place to start. She really needs. So first step is really to step back and see where, where this originated. Yep. Um, if she is on dry food, would you suggest that she goes to a home cooked diet to, she needs to get the dog off dry food. Okay. So the kidneys are one of the problems with an animal and kidney failure. They're going to be dehydrated. They're, they're not able to get enough fluid in and run the fluid through and their protein levels in their blood get way too high. It's a whole cascade dry kibble. 
is about 6% moisture. We've got a pet who's dehydrated, whose kidneys aren't working. We want to flush, flush, flush. That dog should eat soup. That dog should have, and this is one of my problems with prescription diets. We have an animal with a water deficiency and we give it a dry food that has 6% moisture. No, that animal needs 80% moisture. That animal needs all the fluid we can get to it. Okay. So, uh, and that's actually some of the beauty of, of this, of the traditional Chinese medicine is that you, you know, because the kidney is associated with water, that that's really what, what it needs. And that's the, that's part of the beauty of the using food therapy, which you're so good at is starting with, um, the foundation, which is yes. what we put in our mouths in order to, you know, a lot of people would just think, okay, well, maybe I need to switch to can. Well, you still haven't given that dog enough moisture. And I believe I read in the book that you can't give that dog enough water <laughs> no. to, to off, offset the dryness of the food. Plus doesn't um, kibble create heat in the body too, which would create yes. even more dryness. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's how the food is. So in Chinese medicine, there's yin and yang. One is cooling and moisturizing. The other is warming and drying. And when we have an animal who has an inflammatory process going on in their body, they're already hot. We don't want to put in more hot. We don't want to put in more dry. We want to put in cool and moist. Um, So that's the stuff we get into with the yin and yang. Um, there's also what foods are best for the kidneys, like treats like. If we could find some kidney to feed that dog, that would be amazing. One of the problems with dogs and kidney failure is that their phosphorus levels will uh, be elevated because they're not able to clear phosphorus. Meat is higher in phosphorus than it is in calcium. So we need to bind up that phosphorus or we need to find something that we can feed that is lower in phosphorus. Tripe happens to be much lower in phosphorus. So it has a much better calcium phosphorus balance. So a lot of these dogs, if they're in advanced kidney disease, we will feed them a diet of tripe and kidney. That is one of the smelliest things you will ever serve in your entire life. But if you want to save your pet's life and you're at that stage, I had one woman for a year, she made tripe and kidney meals for her German shepherd. That's a lot of tripe, a lot of kidney. It smelled so bad. She said, I have to keep this in a refrigerator in my garage. I can't stand it. Uh, But the dog had a great quality of life for an extra year. We'll also use herbs. Uh, So the kidneys are the water element. The kidneys are the source of life and the ending of life. Uh, From a Chinese medicine standpoint, humans are born with a hundred years of life in their kidneys. If we treat ourselves well, we eat well, we don't overdo uh, or underdo, um, you know, exercise, sex, those sorts of things, uh, then we will live to be a hundred years old. And if you get more than that, it means you were very, very good to yourself and you conserved some of your life energy. Um, So when we want to feed the kidney element, and this is just a small sampling because this goes for each organ system in the body, but a small sampling. Well, if kidneys are the origin of life, then we should be eating things that are the origin of life. What's the origin of life? Eggs, small fish, nuts, and seeds. So those are the kinds of things that would go into a diet that we would make for an animal who needed kidney support. Can dogs have nuts and seeds? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sesame seeds. We use all the time. Flaxseed, uh, almonds. I love almonds, uh, ground almonds. We use ground walnuts occasionally. Um, so it just depends what we're trying to feed. Uh, 
interesting tidbit, and I, I've seen these graphics sometimes and they're really cool, but if you look at a food, what does that food look like? Because that's what that food will help feed. So a walnut looks like a brain. Right. Yeah. And I think beans I- look like kidneys. Now mm-hmm. I don't feed uh, starchy beans to, or uh, starchy foods to my dogs at all, but as a person, if I wanted to support my kidneys, well, then I'd look for things that look like kidneys. If I want to support my brain, I'm going to look for things that look like brain. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And honestly, everybody, if you get the yin and yang book, you're going to be just, um, it's going to be like a whole new world opening up for you. Dr. Judy hasn't, hasn't even scratched the surface of what food therapy can do for you um, or for your pet. Um, oh, for you too. I, for me too, yes. <laughs> Uh, I did have a question about when you create the, when you use these recipes in the book, I think a lot of people get nervous with this idea of complete and balanced, um, but it's balance over time, right? So it's just like part of eating for yourself. Are there any things like calcium or um, vitamins and minerals that should be given every day just because they're um, more necessary than yes. something else? Yes. So I find, uh, and I have quite a few articles running around out there on this, uh, but calcium is definitely, our dogs have a uh, higher calcium requirement than we do. So we need to get that calcium supplement in there. You can use uh, ground eggshells. They need to be ground into a fairly fine powder. Uh, A coffee bean grinder works really well for that. You can use bone meal powder if you find clean bone meal, Uh, not from the dead cows out in the field. You want to find it from grass-fed healthy cows. Um, You can use uh, seaweed uh, or sea-based minerals. Uh, So there are companies, there are quite a few companies. Dr. Tobias has Green Min, which is a sea-based. There's seaweed calcium. There's RX Minerals from RX Vitamins. Uh, There's Carnivore Florifor, which is actually a sprouted seeds supplement that you can add. Uh, The Florophore is really interesting because it's sprouted seeds, but it actually will balance any meal with all the vitamins and minerals that you need. Uh, So we like that one. That one's on our website. Uh, It was designed by Maria Ringo, who is a homeopath from Canada. Uh, she and her husband started that pet food company. And it's a very nice company, Uh, but I like the Florophore and clearly human grade and I've eaten it and it's very good. It makes a wonderful smoothie, by the way. That's funny. So, so you can make complete and balanced over time. Now, when we think about that too, are we thinking about complete and balanced over a week? We thinking about complete and balanced over a month, a year. I mean, just because I know you're just an ingredient in the, in the pot. So it's definitely, uh, you know, it's not over a year. Um, however, I can tell you that I have had clients come in and I ask them what they're feeding and they say, Oh, I feed a raw diet. Great. What one are you feeding? Are you making your own? Oh, I make my own. Great. What are you, what are you using? Raw hamburger from the grocery store. Right. No. (laughs) Okay. That's not, that's not even close folks. Let's not go there. But I've had people do this and their dogs are still bouncing around the room and they've been eating the wrong thing. I had one who fed cooked hamburger and broccoli for a year. I mean, why is your dog still bouncing around the room with yeah. decent looking lab work? He should be dead. So when you, your veterinarian says, oh my gosh, if you give him an egg, you're going to unbalance his dry dog food and he'll be totally screwed up. No, he won't because I get a lot of people. There are a lot of people out there. I see recipes, be very careful recipes on the internet. I see recipes on the internet all the time. There are 
tons of dog recipe books out there written by lay people with with no balance in there at all, very high in rice and potatoes, uh, no calcium supplementation, no vitamin D, uh, no trace minerals. And we don't really want to go there. You've got to have variety. So even let's say this dog that has a kidney problem, Mm -hmm. she might find one recipe in there that she really likes. And she might say, okay, well, this is what my dog's going to eat. I don't recommend that you feed that same recipe over and over and over and over. What I recommend to people and what I do with my own foods is if I I used to, for a while, I was grinding 250 pounds of food a month for a bunch of dogs. Um, And I would make a bunch of different grinds with different ingredients in them. And I would label them. So I might have one that was a rabbit base or a duck base or a venison base and different fruits and veggies in them and label them, throw them in the freezer. And then over the course of the month, we would just be pulling out whichever one uh, because I was feeding raw, mine have ground bone in them. Uh, if you're cooking it, you need to be using a, a, a more finely powdered. You can use uh, bone if it is a fine powder, you don't want large cooked chips. Um, so uh, you don't have to balance every single day. Uh, but if you are going to feed a 100% homemade diet long-term to your pet, then I do recommend that you uh, either look at the pup loaf recipe and look at the ingredients that are in there and, and, you know, that'll help you see, okay, this is the kind of stuff I got to get in here. And the balancing app chapter tells you, look, you need trace minerals. You can use oysters. You can use mussels. You can use kelp. That'll get your zinc, your iodine, those sorts of things. So you can do it with whole food, uh, but you've got to get that stuff in there. Uh, So I like to see things balanced definitely over 30 days where we're getting enough variety in there. Uh, Better if you could do it over uh, a seven day period, but our pets are so resilient, so resilient, and they'll do great. If you notice that your dog is out eating dirt, you're missing something in your diet. If your dog is chowing down on grass, you're missing something in your diet. If your dog is eating everybody else's poop, he's missing something in his diet. Wow. <laughs> so calcium would be the number one thing. Number one, vitamin D probably you- next. Uh, but you don't want to just willy nilly start giving them human vitamin D supplements because their dose of vitamin D is very low compared to ours. And the human supplements are going to be way too high and you'll put them into kidney failure. Okay. Um, so that's why it is important to read that balancing act chapter. And, and I say it throughout the book, you know, make sure you're balancing, make sure you're balancing, read that chapter. But I put that chapter near the end. I probably should have put it first. Okay. <laughs> Some people don't get that far. <laughs> well, I mean, you you know, and all of the recipes in your book can be fed cooked or raw, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And you can cook them in a slow cooker. You can bake them like a meatloaf. Uh, you can make them into little muffins, uh, however you want to make it. And now I, I think I remember um, either reading or hearing you speak about if you have an animal who is weak in any way, the, the vitality is very low. They, you probably should start with cooked and you should also grind it up. So make it so easy for them to digest that you can kind of start to build them back up. Is that correct? Yes. So look at what senior citizens, human 
senior <laughs> citizens are fed. My, nice. my dad was in the nursing home for the last month of his life and he was having, he had Parkinson's, he was having trouble swallowing, having troubles with digestion. So they literally ran his food through a blender after they cooked it to death and it was bland, horrible. Uh, and then they would use those uh, cake pipe icing things and they would pipe out his string beans and pipe out his mashed potatoes, but it was pre-digested food. It was, you know, and that's why baby food looks like what it looks like because they don't have a mature digestive system and they have to learn how to eat. So we give it to them already digested. Yeah. Uh, that, that apparently is changing these days, but what do I know? My kids are old. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but if you have a really, so for instance, we rescue a lot of old dogs, a lot of old dogs with a lot of problems. And as much as I love raw feeding, first of all, they look at it if they've had dry kibble their entire life, they don't even recognize it as food. If the texture is wrong, they they just don't know what to do with it. And dry food is sprayed, right? With palatins? Sprayed with fats. fats sprayed with fats and palatins. Good. Yeah. It's yeah. not that they like the shape. It's they like the smell. You just they like the smell. Paid for palatins. <laughs> so what I will usually do is uh, cook the first few meals for these dogs and I will hand feed them, get some into their mouth. And then they're like, Ooh, that's pretty good stuff. Wow. Yeah. Hit the jackpot. <laughs> uh, and then a lot of them, I can transition them over to the raw. It just depends on how good their digestive system is. And now with that said, I had a four-year-old dog who came to me who hadn't held anything down in months. Everything he ate came out each end. And he oh. was declared by the university as having the worst scarring of the bowel that they had ever seen. There was no hope for the dog. Oh man. And he was on a bunch of drugs and it wasn't helping. And he weighed about 40 pounds and should weigh about 75. Oh, God. So uh, this was fairly early in my food therapy career. And I said, well, what he's eating now clearly does not work. Right. So we're just going to make a major change. And we also stopped his drugs, cold turkey. Uh, well, his prednisone, we had to wean because you can't stop that cold turkey, but everything else we stopped. And um, I put him on a raw beef diet. Within 48 hours, that dog had perfect stool. Wow. And within six months, he was 80 pounds. And then we had to back off on his food. And all that scarring in his bowel um, caused him to not be able to absorb the food very well. So the 40-pound dog was eating four pounds of food a day, which yeah. is enough for about a 200-pound dog. Uh, but he just he couldn't, couldn't absorb it. But as his gut healed, he got down to where half to three-quarters of a pound of food a day uh, – maintained his very active lifestyle with no problem. And he and, never had another issue. Yeah. That's actually one of the really beautiful things that you see when you use food therapy and, um, or food as medicine is that these things that sound like they'll never go away. You have scarring, you have heart disease, you have, and, and I mean that too, heart disease, you can reverse the mm -hmm. symptom, the outward symptoms. Catching them earlier certainly is better, but, uh, we've reversed um, an awful lot of chronic, like that dog. I mean, his scarring was, was ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. The owner said to me a couple of years later, she said, man, I'd love to go back to the university and have them take, you know, scope him again and get biopsies again, because they said there was no hope for him. She said, I just don't want to spend the money. I don't want to put him through it. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, the proof is in the pudding. You've got, you've got this wonderfully healthy dog. Yeah. And that's great. And sometimes this is the problem. You have to do so much upfront, but if you'll just stick with it, you can 
really make a, uh, a major change. Plus there are herbs that can heal the gut, uh, soothe and heal the gut. So if you work with somebody who knows herbs, um, a holistic veterinarian, there are more things that you can do. So, Absolutely. yeah. And yeah, a lot of I, times I'll start with food and depending on how severe the problem is, a lot of times we have to add herbs cause we need that extra punch. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes we'll add acupuncture cause we need that extra punch. So it just depends what we're dealing with. Yeah. And actually that's uh, this is a nice point for that. So chiropractic really takes the structure and moves around the body to free up nerve impulses. Acupuncture right. kind of does the same thing, but it also clears up energy meridians that run through the body. So it's not just about your spine. Acupuncture can really go in and, and move that deeper, yes. right? They, you can move energy, you can move yes. you, rebalance. I right. Guess. And the chiropractic, everybody thinks of it as uh, a, we're adjusting his spine or we're putting his spine back in place. We're, we're really not. What we're doing is taking a rigid spine and putting motion back into it so that we allow nerve and blood flow, which comes from the spinal cord out through between the vertebrae and supplies everything, all the organs, the skin, the muscles, the joints. Uh, and if we have blockages that don't allow that nerve and blood flow, then we have disease. Yeah. I think I was really shocked the very first time I had investigated, um, chiropractic that this bladder infection may be caused by <laughs> the, the dog's lower back being out because the nerve isn't getting the proper impulses. So the dog feels like she has to go to the bathroom all the time. It's hard with our dogs because they can't say, <laughs> I feel like I have to go to the bathroom all the time. My lower back hurts, but you know, learning about these tools and, and then also how to integrate them. The healthcare you create for your dog is really makes the best use of all of that, all yep. those modalities that are out there. The um, amazing thing is that our animals are really good at telling us something is going on. We're just not very good at listening. If, you're, if your dog is suddenly drinking a ton of water, he's trying to say, I got a fire inside. I'm trying to put it out. I, there's something inflamed. There is something hot. I am putting out this fire. It's your job to figure out where that fire is or your veterinarian's job to figure out where that fire is. Um, so we use tongue and pulse diagnosis a lot to help determine that, uh, whether there's heat or uh, other problems going on, whether there's too much moisture, too little moisture, too, too much heat, too much cool. Um, and we just need to listen. So for instance, lick granulomas on dogs where they lick, 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 lick. And usually it's on their front knee and yeah. we'll get these sores. And so most veterinarians are going to focus on that spot and they will do everything they can to that spot. Right. However, commonly they're licking that because they've got a tingling in that leg because they've got a pinch in their neck. Yeah. Nobody ever looks at the neck. You know, it's it my female, the, my female right now who, um, I really, I just realized that it was, um, she was licking her, uh, on the inside of her back leg. And I kept thinking you have a bladder infection, you know, it looked like she was taking care of her lady parts. But then I noticed on the first two toes on her back left leg, she's got porphyrin staining. So the redness that you see come up. So it doesn't always have to be a lick granuloma. I think what has happened is when her rear end is out, it 
it tingles kind of like your mm-hmm. fingers when they go numb yep. or you hit exactly. your funny bone and they don't have any other way to tell us. So right. yeah, that's wonderful. I didn't even know that lick granulomas were the same, were a similar problem. Yep. So yep. neck, so they need a chiropractic adjustment. Could be, could yeah. be, or it could be they've got arthritis in that joint, but here we are, we're focused on the skin. Well, we got to heal, heal that skin lesion. Well, let's take an x-ray. Maybe there's a cancer starting in that long bone right there. Osteosarcoma, that's a very common place for it. Maybe they're licking because they're trying to get to something on the inside. Mm-hmm. So you have to look past the obvious symptom and say, well, why is the dog licking there? I mean, could it could have started with a bee sting? Sure. Not that common. Um, but the dog is, is trying to tell you, look, I got a problem. This is where it's manifesting for me. That doesn't mean that's where it started. Uh, so we need to, we need to question. We need to really um, listen to what they're doing. Uh, you know, when you get behavior changes, especially in senior dogs, their behavior might've changed because their vision changed or their hearing changed, or they are more arthritic or they've got pain somewhere. Uh, A dog who suddenly becomes more aggressive, doesn't want to be petted, doesn't want the other dogs around them. They're not feeling well. There's, there's a reason why the behavior changed. There's a reason um, that they're not acting like their normal selves. The problem we're having with our dogs right now is they're all feeling really good since our move. And we added a couple supplements they're running around playing with each other like nutcases and we can't get them to stop. (laughs) And these are seniors. (laughs) That's wonderful though. That's absolutely wonderful. It's a good problem, but man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but the thing is, is you've noticed that it's like, you can't unknow it once you learn it. (laughs) Well, once you learn it, you can't unknow it. You shouldn't. It matters. It matters. It does. You you love this um, dog or cat and you just, you want the best for them and and you shouldn't unknow it. Um, But I also (laughs) feel like that it's wonderful what we've talked about here today, because you've made it, I think, brought a lot of ways for people, no matter what, how they want to feed, to be able to bring the best nutrition that they can to their home high quality kibble supplement with real foods. Maybe you look at canned food, home cooked and raw are going to be bringing the most holistic nutrition, you know, similar to what we would eat. And all you really have to do as a consumer is take a look at how you feel after three days of um, fast food, because you haven't been able to cook at home. Uh, Look at your skin. As a woman, it, your bags under your eyes, isn't it? Isn't, it's because of some of the way you eat, your redness in your cheeks. You're kind of dehydrating yourself a little bit from too much salt or, uh, well, yeah. maybe that's not exactly the right thing, but. Well, that's part of it. <laughs> it affects how you look and how you feel and also your mind. Um, mm-hmm. So, and the same thing applies for our dogs. So, oh, wow. <laughs> well, this has been absolutely amazing. I am, I wish I had another few hours with you to to really (laughs) deep dive into both of these books, but I really wanted to um, bring at least a a taste of both of them to my listeners so that they can start exploring your materials on their own. So I will go ahead and link all of the information that you had mentioned below. And um, thank you so very much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was very enjoyable. Thank you. Wow, that was a really wonderful episode. 
I feel like I've walked away with so much more knowledge on how to really level up my pet care. I'm very grateful for her spending time here today. If you will check the show notes below, I will have linked all the ways you can connect with Dr. Judy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please like this episode, subscribe if you haven't already, and stay happy. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Dog Happy. For more information and videos on today's topic, as well as more ways to keep your canine happy and healthy, be sure to visit us online at doghappy.com and follow us on Instagram at dog.happy. That's at dog.happy with an I.